Now hear God's word from Luke chapter 1, continuing our study in the gospel according to Luke. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he also saw a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she, out of her poverty, put in all the livelihood that she had. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come, in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we have heard your word read, we have sung it, we have prayed it, and now we ask for your word to penetrate our hearts as we read the words of our Savior. Help us to grasp his teaching by your Holy Spirit. Illumine us and change us, reform us, correct us, admonish us, encourage us by your Holy Spirit today and help me to articulate these things clearly and be an effective messenger of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first time I remember a, a movie ending, especially a, a twist movie ending, really blowing my mind, really kind of turning my brain inside out. The first time I remember that happening was the uh, ending of the original Planet of the Apes movie, the, the 1968 one with Charlton Heston. Not only did it blow my mind that Moses was an astronaut, that was, that was huge, that was amazing. You know, Moses was in the Ten Commandments. I mean, sorry, Charlton Heston was in the Ten Commandments, right? Okay. Just want to be sure you're keeping up. Um, now, I didn't, that movie came out in 1968. I didn't see it until about a decade later. But I remember my eight or nine-year-old brain trying to come to grips and process what I had just seen as the credits rolled. Now, if it's possible to spoil a 50-year-old movie, I'm about, to, I'm about to do that. I'm about to give away the ending. You remember Heston was an astronaut uh, whose ship crash lands on an alien planet and this planet is ruled by intelligent apes. There are humans, but the humans are these subliterate slaves to the, to the apes. And at the end of the film, Charlton Heston, his character, finds out that this whole time he's not been on an alien planet at all. But he's been on Earth all along. In fact, he's on a future Earth. And it hits him when he sees the destroyed head and arm of the Statue of Liberty on the seashore, laying in ruins. You remember that, you remember that scene. It's rather clear, very vivid. What, what twisted my brain, of course, was the revelation that he had been on Earth all of this time, and that of all the places that he could have ended up, he just so happened to crash land somewhere near New York. I mean, what are the odds? What are the odds of that? Uh, but more than that, to see one of our, our nation's most famous symbols broken in ruins, and then to process the possibility as a child, to process the possibility that our civilization, one day, our world could be wiped off the earth and become a distant memory. That, that was something that had never entered my thoughts before, and it was something that was quite shocking and surprising to me. Now, certainly in the years since then, we've seen many on-screen depictions of 
great United States landmarks and monuments destroyed by aliens, giant robots, astronauts, Godzilla, whatever. We see these things all the time so that it's now old hat. You know, we say, oh yeah, I've seen that. I've seen that before. So we're not as shocked by that image as maybe we once were. And of course, seeing great monumental buildings in real time, in real life being destroyed, like the World Trade Center, it brings these images closer to home. It, it doesn't require as much imagination as it once did to consider that, that maybe there, there might be a day when some of these things that we rely on might be gone. But try if you can, use your imagination, and put yourself in the place of a first century Jew in Jerusalem, understanding the role that the great temple in the middle of the city, what, what, what role it served as this impressive icon, this symbol of your nation and of your people. The temple is the center of your worship and your identity. And then to attempt to process the idea that this would be utterly destroyed someday. There's going to be a day when we're going to come to Jerusalem and it's going to be gone. It's going to be wiped out. Now, I'm sure for you there are places and there are buildings that are pretty, pretty special to you. And if I were to tell you that place, you know that favorite spot that you have, that building, that place, one day it's going to be wiped off the map. To, to process that, you would experience some sense of grief and maybe a little anxiety. But I'm not sure any of us are attached to anything the way that the Jews were attached to their temple. Because, you see, as long as the temple stood, it was a reminder of the covenant between them and God. It was a reassurance to them that, it was, that, that they were still God's people, that they were under his care and they were under his blessing. No matter what else is going on, as long as the temple's standing, we're okay and we're going to be okay. As long as the sacrifices are continuing, it really doesn't matter what else is going on. And in fact, all kinds of wickedness and all kinds of corruption got a free pass in the shadow of the temple. There was a, a great deal of presumption. And this is what the prophet Jeremiah mocks when he says, don't, don't trust those who tell you that everything is fine, who just keep saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He says, don't, don't trust them. Don't, don't trust that. They treated the temple like a good luck charm, you know, kind of like a talisman that, that, you know, as long as it's there, we're okay and God is happy with us. So add also to the emotional and spiritual dimensions and a little bit of the superstition dimension, add to all of this attachment to the temple, add to it the physical impressiveness of the temple. The, the temple in Jerusalem dominated the skyline when you approached the city. It was all gleaming white stone and brass and, and marble. The, the stones of the temple walls were massive. They were roughly 40 feet long by 8 feet wide by 4 feet tall, and each stone weighed about 80 tons. That's one stone. That's one brick of the temple walls, and these walls stood 100 feet tall. So even though it had gone through a great building process under Solomon, and then a renovation rebuilding under Ezra and Nehemiah, and then, of course, Herod had come along and made his renovations. Even though it had gone through these various phases, the temple had stood at the center of Israel's self-identity for a thousand years. To process the thought that, that it might be gone someday was unthinkable. 
The thought that this central, vital, massive, iconic structure would one day lie in ruins was absolutely, heartbreakingly, breathtakingly unthinkable to the first century Jew. And yet, the destruction of that structure is exactly what Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem to declare. When he rides into the city on the back of a donkey and the people are praising him, there's a little bit of a nationalistic fervor going on. They think maybe he's the Messiah who's going to march up to Herod's front door and, uh, and, and call him out. Or maybe he's going to get an army and attack the nearest Roman garrison. In, in, in fact, he does none of that. He goes right up to the temple. Instead of, instead of doing anything that anybody expects, he goes right up to the temple And then Jesus initiates God's judgment against the temple by running the money changers out. And then he sits in the temple and he teaches, as we saw last week, as Anthony showed us. He was wrangling with the authorities. He was leaving them speechless. He he told that parable that depicted the the rulers and the priests as these... um, these lazy hired hands, these unloyal, rebellious hired hands who would even kill the son of the vineyard owner. Jesus dresses them down in front of all the people. At the very end of chapter 20, he says, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. Of course, when Jesus mocks the robes of the scribes, Jesus himself is wearing a robe at the time. It's like everybody was wearing robes at the time. But they were going around in their finery, uh, in, in their expensive clothes, eating expensive feasts, shoving their opulence and their affluence in the faces of those that they were oppressing. They were actually abusing the weak and the powerless, and they were showing off their, their glory and their their luxury in front of these people that they were supposed to be serving. These are the attitudes that Jesus has been calling out on the whole trip from Galilee to Jerusalem, this self-promoting, self-conceited, self-absorbed behavior of the religious authorities who put on a good show. It's all about externals. It's all about superficial appearances and who then turn around and devour widows' houses. They abuse those that they're called to protect. Well, well, right after Jesus says this about widows, you know, the chapter breaks uh, were put there about 500, 600 years ago or so. So when you're reading the Bible, you you don't come to an end of a chapter and think automatically the story's over because right after Jesus condemns them for devouring widows' houses, what happens? At the beginning of chapter 21, we see that Jesus witnesses. He looks up and sees a poor widow offering her, her gift to the treasury, putting in two small coins, the, the smallest unit of currency. It would be equivalent to maybe a couple of dollars for us today. Some of your translations say mites. Some of them may say drachmas or some of them may say pennies. Um, just think in terms of a couple of bucks to, to you and me in our modern currency. So that means where Jesus is sitting on this day, he's sitting in the area of the treasury where there were 13 trumpet-shaped collection boxes where people would put their money for their various uh, gifts and make their donations. And each one was inscribed with, with a title for where that, where that gift would go. This one will go to the building. This one will go to the priests and their families. This one will go to the, to the poor or, or to others. So this is not a private kind of 
uh, engagement. This is not, you, you don't go into a room and pull a curtain and then, and then make your gift. You make it in front of everybody. Jesus sees the rich put their gifts in, and then he sees this poor widow put her gift in. He doesn't say poor old widow. I think typically we think of a, maybe like an older woman. She could have been a 27 year old widow. We just, she, she could have been 80. We don't know. All that we know is that she is obviously poor and that she is obviously a widow. Maybe she was well-known, uh, a well-known widow because of her uh, continual appearance at the temple. But when Jesus sees this poor woman's gift, giving the last of what she had in good faith, in obedience and devotion to God. And he sees this contrasted with the waste and the idolatry that abounded around him. It sets him off to pronounce the doom and the destruction of this entire temple complex. I think we get sidetracked on this story and believe that the principle here, the, the lesson here is the widow and her gift and what an example it is. And since we're trying to raise money for a building fund, it would be really convenient for me to stop here and to say, get out your checkbooks and whatever your bank balance is. If you want to be like this widow, you need to give everything to uh, the cause of building the church. In fact, uh, that would be pretty disingenuous and pretty rotten of me to do that because I don't think that's the lesson here at all. Uh, we, we think, oh, it's so wonderful that she gave everything that she had. Is it really wonderful? Is, it, is this really a, a good example? Would you, would you encourage a poor widow who is struggling to pay for groceries and whose electricity almost gets turned off every month because she can't pay her light bill and, and, and she's on the verge of getting kicked out of her apartment. And we're, maybe we're trying to help her and we're trying to uh, get her through. Would you encourage her to give her last 200 bucks to the building fund? Would you, would you do that? I hope not. I hope nobody here would say that's a good idea. That's a terrible idea, right? I mean, nobody would say that's a, that's a really wonderful thing. You wouldn't encourage her to do that. You wouldn't encourage her to send her last $2 to a faith healer who drives around in a, you know, a, a, a limousine and has a private jet either, right? You, absolutely not. Jesus is angry about this. He's not pointing to her and saying, I want everyone to act just like her. In fact, he says, this is, this is awful that the leaders of Israel are permitting this to happen and even encouraging it. I mean, he has just said in one breath, he says, you devour widows' houses. And then a widow comes up and everybody watches as she puts the last of her sustenance into the building fund while everybody looks around at the gleaming stones of the temple. Isn't that what it says? He says, everybody, some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations. You ought to read that and you ought to say, something's wrong there. You ought to see the widow's gift and you ought to say, whoa, what is, what is happening here? What is going on? And Jesus is angry about it. The example of the widow's offering is not a lesson about sacrificial giving, though, though we have no reason to doubt her sincerity. We don't, we don't have any reason to doubt the genuineness of her faith. She's following the advice of her pastors. She's doing what she feels like she's called to do. The problem is her pastors are wicked and they are awful and they are abusing her and they are subjecting her and she doesn't know any better. That, that this goes on and that it's encouraged is a shame to the leadership of Israel. This is how they devour widows' houses. They, they set up this predatory system that convinces the weak and the helpless that they're being faithful and godly when they give much more than they 
are supposed to give or can afford to give. So uh, as much as uh, he's affirming the widow's faith, we have this story so that we can know why this temple is about to be destroyed. We, we're, we're finding out here why this is all about to be demolished because instead of providing for the widows and the poor, this system is robbing them of their wealth and leaving them penniless. That's why the temple must be torn down. That's why not one stone can be left upon another. And so it's directly from there that Jesus comments on the stones and the decorations of the temple and how not one stone will be left on another. Anthony did a great job last week of pointing out all the references to stones over these last couple of chapters of Luke's gospel. And, and Luke is a really rocky book. Luke, Luke is full of rocks. What does John the Baptist say? John the Baptist says, you know, why do you come to me saying that you're sons of Abraham? God can raise up these stones to be children of Abraham. And then as Jesus is riding into the city on the back of the donkey, the Pharisees say, Jesus, tell these people to be quiet. And Jesus says, I could, I, if I told them to be quiet, these stones would cry out my praises. Satan tempts Jesus to turn stone into bread. And then later Jesus says, if your father, I'm sorry, if your son asks you for bread, will you give him a stone? There's some parallel there that, that uh, we could spend time exploring. Jesus mentioned a tower a few chapters ago, a tower that fell and crushed some people under its stones. And it's just a little taste of what it's going to be like when all the buildings come falling down in just a few decades. There are multiple references to the prophets who were stoned, and there are threats to stone Jesus throughout Luke's gospel. And of course, as we saw last week, Jesus is the chief cornerstone against which everyone and everything is dashed. And so it's kind of funny when everybody talks about stoning him, how do you stone the chief cornerstone? How do you stone the rock that was in uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream that Daniel tells us about, that rock that topples all the nations of the earth and becomes a great mountain? How do you, how do you stone that stone? How do you, what, what do you think you're going to do? Do you think you're going to hurt him? Do you think you're going to end him? And of course, Luke's gospel ends with a great stone being rolled away from the mouth of a grave. So here we focus on these massive stones of the temple. And Jesus says, all of these are going to come down. Jesus says, as, as hard as it is to accept or believe it, this is all going to come crashing down. I am the temple who is going to remain. My people are the living stones that are going to make up the walls of the new temple. And, and this temple's days are, are numbered. Well, if you hear somebody say that, your natural question is going to be, okay, when? When? When is this going to happen? And so Jesus answers if we pick up with verse 7. So they asked him saying, teacher, but when will all these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? And he said, take heed that you uh, be not deceived for many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time has drawn near. Therefore do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified for these things must come to pass first but the end will not come immediately. Then he said to them, nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake, but it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. 
Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. I'm going to stop right there and remind you just as a, as a foretaste, next chapter is all about betrayal uh, and, and denial of Jesus' friends. Jesus is going to go through it first and then his people are going to follow him. But not a hair, he says, uh, you will be hated for, uh, by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon the people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So back in chapter 9 at the transfiguration, and this was many, many months ago we studied this, but the, the transfiguration came up in a gospel reading uh, a few weeks ago as well. You might remember Luke uses an interesting word there. When he's at the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus discusses with Moses and Elijah his exodus. That's the word that's used there. Jesus is going to accomplish his exodus in Jerusalem. And so we understand that what he's talking about, Jesus is talking about his rejection, his suffering, his death, and re his resurrection, which he had been discussing with his disciples di directly before the transfiguration. Remember also in the same breath at the Mount, right before the transfiguration, he said that there would be some standing there who would not taste death until they see the coming, uh, coming of the kingdom of God. So he says, you're going to you know, witness all of this that's happening. But what did he mean? What did he mean by Exodus back on the mountain? Well, he's bringing it up in a way again here. The events surrounding the impending destruction of Jerusalem was an exodus event. He mentions pestilences, and some of your translations might say, do say plagues. He's talking pestilences and plagues, famines. Whenever you hear of plagues and, 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 and these kinds of things, you think of Egypt and the Exodus. And Jesus also mentions fearful sights and great signs from heaven, which remind us of the signs and wonders that were performed by God in Egypt. So this is the Exodus that Jesus was discussing with Moses and Elijah. Jesus says there will be persecution from the Jews, persecution from the synagogues. They will lay their hands on you, similar to the way that Israel suffered under the heavy hands of the Egyptians and were attacked by them. And in the face of all this, what is Jesus' instruction? When you see this new exodus, when you start to see these plagues and pestilences and, and these various signs from heaven, what are you supposed to do? Get out, leave, Flee, go away, don't stick around because Jesus says these, these events are of cosmic proportion. I want, to, I want to pick up from verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations with perplexity. The sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing. Men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. 
the Lord Jesus says, all these things are signs that your redemption is drawing near. Uh, that word redemption is, is a word, uh, we're, we're talking about liberation from slavery. We're talking about a new exodus because Jerusalem and Judea are behaving like Egypt. Young people think for just a second, how was, how was Jerusalem acting like Egypt? Especially when Jesus was a young boy. Remember Herod wanted to kill all the baby boys in Jerusalem and in the surrounding areas, right? Well, he's acting just like Pharaoh. Jerusalem and Judea have been acting like Egypt for a long time now. And so if Jerusalem is the new Egypt, you don't stick around. When it comes time to leave, you don't, you don't take any, any sentimental loyalty to the temple or the traditions as, as, as being more important than your call to get out of town. You get out, you go on a new journey, a new exodus into the wilderness. You go into the world where you'll be led again by God's Holy Spirit into a new promised land, a new heavens and a new earth. And Jesus here promises to avenge his people, just like he poured out his vengeance on Egypt. He says, I'm going to pour out my wrath on Jerusalem. He says, these will be days of vengeance. And in so doing, I will liberate my people who have been enslaved to this society and to these systems and who've been oppressed by her rulers. Now, we always have to undo misunderstandings about what Jesus is talking about here so I, I never want to fail to remind you that when, when we read Jesus, when he says uh, the Son of Man will be coming in the clouds, he, he's not talking about physically popping out behind a, a cloud in the sky. He's using it the way the prophets use this phrase. I, Isaiah, Isaiah 19, Isaiah writes, The oracle concerning Egypt, behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Well, back in that day, Yahweh didn't pop out from behind a cloud. We're talking about God coming, Him riding with clouds of His mighty army of angels to come execute judgment and justice on His enemies. Jesus is also calling us to remember Daniel's prophecy, where, where Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And then Daniel goes on to talk about the enthronement of the son of man and his judgment of the nations. And so that's what Jesus is referring to. He knows that you know all these prophecies. He knows that you know Isaiah like the back of your hand, and you've got Daniel all worked out. And so when Jesus references these things, he says, oh yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And yet, you know, over the last 150 years, because we don't know the Old Testament, we take these things in isolation and we act like this is brand new information that's never come up before in the Bible, and we create these kind of new ideas around them, when in fact Jesus is just referring to what the prophets talk about. And whenever the prophets talk about disturbances in the sun, moon, and stars, you've heard me say this before, but I want you to remember that that he's primarily, the prophets are talking about the rulers of the nations. Heavenly bodies govern the day and night. And rulers are always compared to sun, moon, and stars. So what does it mean if the sun, moon, and stars go out? Well, it means that the powers are being judged and the lights go out for Babylon or the lights go out for Egypt. As now we're reading, Jesus say, the lights are about to go out in Jerusalem as all of these political and religious systems that are opposed to Jesus, everything that undermines Jesus' mission, everyone who seeks his death and actively campaigns against his kingdom, it's all about to go dark. Well, Jesus concludes this teaching with a parable and an exhortation. Let's finish the chapter, verse 29. And then he spoke to them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. 
When they're, ready, when they're already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Jesus talks about fig trees again in the short parable. One reason that, that fig trees are such a great illustration is that fig trees are so predictable. They're so reliable. They always lose their leaves at the start of the cold season. They have bare branches all the way through the winter. They put out leaves and buds in the spring. And then fig trees stay continuously fruitful if you take care of them. They stay fruitful all the way through the whole growing season. You can get multiple harvests of figs from a well-tended fig tree, a continuous harvest. They're very fruitful trees, and you can set your watch by them, Jesus says. It's kind of like watching the seasons change with the Bradford pears. You can tell when the Bradford pears start to, start to flower, right? Because it smells like a bait shop, right? Have you, have you smelled these trees? Do you have them in your yard? I've got six in our yard and they smell awful, but they're beautiful. They turn white and then, uh, and then when spring starts to turn, they, the, they put out the green leaves. And then, and then when, when it turns around, you know, it starts to get cool at night. Fall comes, and they turn this amazing, beautiful orange-red color. The leaves turn red, and then they fall. And you can set your clock. You know the season. You know what season it is by looking at one of these trees. You know, you know how to mark, mark the seasons. And Jesus says, you know how to do this. You, you can tell. So just as sure as the cycles of the trees mark the changing of the seasons, just as sure as the flowers blooming and the grass turning green lets you know that you're headed into summer, Just as surely then as you see the momentum picking up and these plagues and pestilences and earthquakes and armies surrounding Jerusalem, when you see this stuff, you know that the end is near. And lest you forget or misunderstand, he says one more time, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. This isn't going to take forever. It's not going to be millennia before God puts an end to Jerusalem and the temple. In just a few decades, God is going to deliver his final verdict against the old system. He's going to deliver his final verdict against Judaism. And by bringing the temple to nothing, God is going to make the old system impossible to comply with. The the old system, the old Judaism is impossible to practice. Now, the only way you can be pleasing to God is by following Jesus. When the temple goes, the sacrifices go away. The old calendar of festivals goes away. The priesthood goes away. The Sabbath goes away. The dietary laws and the cleanliness laws go away. Judaism is over in AD 70 when the temple falls. There is nothing more to do. That's it. You can't keep the Sabbaths. You can't keep the festivals. You can't sacrifice. There's no priesthood. None of it's there. Because God is calling Israel to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. And you don't need those things anymore. Why do you need animal sacrifices when you have Jesus? 
Why do you need the old, uh, the, 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 the purity laws and the, and, the, and the dietary laws when the blood of Jesus has cleansed the world? Why, why do you need these things anymore? Why do you need the old calendar when now you have the life of Jesus to celebrate and to feast by? Jesus has inherited the world after his victory and, and, and after his victory over death. The old world has been put away. God has leveled the whole world. That is his verdict on the old world. Don't go back there longing for it. Don't try to bring it back. Don't have a sentimental attachment to it. Leave it in ruins and embrace Jesus. That's the call that, that's being issued here. So there's this urgency to Jesus' instruction. He says, don't, don't be like those at the flood who wouldn't get in the ark. And, and he's, he's done this instruction before in Luke's gospel. We saw it a few weeks ago. Don't be like Lot's wife looking back into Sodom. Don't stay in Egypt. Join Moses and get out of Egypt. And when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, flee, get out. Don't weep for the temple. Don't weep for the priesthood. Don't weep for the things that are destroyed. Embrace Jesus and the new heavens and the new earth the priesthood and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rulers and the lawyers that devour widows' houses, they abuse and oppress the people. Why are you attached to them? Why would you feel any sentimentality for that world? Why would you miss it? They devour. Jesus is delivering. And he's actively in the process of delivering you now. That's, that's what he's saying here. Jesus delivers. I I am the mighty warrior. I am the conqueror. I am rescue you, rescuing you and bringing you out in a new exodus. And so Jesus concludes with this exhortation. He says, don't let your hearts be weighed down with carousing, with drunkenness, with the cares of this life, so that that day comes on you unexpectedly. In that intervening, intervening time between the resurrection and Pentecost over here, and the destruction of Jerusalem over here in AD 70, Christians would be tempted to get lazy, to let their faith sag, to grow complacent, to wonder if Jesus was really going to keep his promise at all to come in judgment against Jerusalem. In that space of about 40 years, it would be very tempting to lose hope and to forget these things that Jesus said. And of course, we see this all over the epistles, don't we? The epistles address the letters are constantly encouraging them toward faithfulness, toward steadfastness, to maturity and sobriety. Jesus knows it's going to happen. So he says, don't get distracted. Don't go off course. Don't you engage in the very same behavior that I am coming to judge. Now, the events that Jesus tells us about here, these are all, these are all history for us. But the instruction is very much relevant still. Because Jesus is always putting old worlds away. And he's always bringing forth new realities, new worlds, new, new phases of history. Remember, as we saw back in Advent, Jesus is the author of history and he is continuing to write history. And when we grow impatient with wickedness, understand he is allowing men time to repent. He's allowing them to work their, work their evil out and, and see the end of the, of the path that they're going on. He is, he is being, he's being long-suffering with their foolishness. We get, we get impatient. We say, oh, Lord, how long? But when he moves, it is swift and it is decisive and, and it is final. 
And he does this. This is what he does. This is how he, he, he moves through history. He did it in the garden. He put that whole world away after the fall and said, okay, come out into the land. I've got a new world for you. And he did it at the flood. He did it with Abraham and Moses and with Joshua getting them into the land. And then the prophets kicking them out of the land. Then Ezra and Nehemiah bringing them back to the land. He's always ending one phase of history and instituting another. He did it with the decline and fall of Rome. He did it with the Reformation in the 16th century. And with many other reformations and transformations throughout human history, Jesus is folding up one world, wrapping it up, and bringing his people through to a new world, to a new reality. And he continues to do that, and he shows us how very clearly he does that here. So what does that mean for me and you? Well, it means that we can never get too cozy. It means that we can't ever get too dependent upon or too invested in the societies of men. One day, the Statue of Liberty may very well be knocked off her pedestal and left lying on the shore. One day, very likely, this nation will be no more or it will become something else unrecognizable. Our culture will be a footnote in a history book somewhere, but that's okay because this is not the be-all, end-all of human progress. So when you read the news and you hear what's going on, you think, boy, this can't sustain itself. This can't hold itself together. Something's going to give. Something's got to break. This thing can't keep going on. Well, you're right. You're absolutely right about that. And know that judgment is coming. Judgment is absolutely coming. And when that judgment takes place and everything is shaken up and rattled and Jesus closes one chapter of history and starts a new one, know that he is working that he is delivering and he is calling you to join him on this exodus out of one world into the next. So we can't be like Lot's wife. We can't be like those who refused to join Israel in the exodus. We can't be like those who hung around Jerusalem and were crushed by the Roman army. We can't long for the artifacts of this world. We can't hold on to the foolishness and the wickedness and the immaturity and the nonsense. We can't grow sentimentally attached to the things that God hates. Don't love the things that God has marked out for judgment. Don't cling to them. Don't hold on to them. Don't grow in love with the things that God hates. Repent, turn away, put away your sins, and stand with his church because that's the only thing that makes it from one world to the next. God has not promised that nations or states will last from one age to the next. In fact, not even the family is eternal. Jesus says your brothers and sisters, your mothers and fathers will hate you. They'll turn against you. Not even the family is, is eternal. The church is the ark of salvation. Jesus and his people, that's what preserves you while worlds are ending. So where, where do your loyalties lie? What is your highest allegiance? What is your chief community? It's with Jesus and his people. That's what preserves us through times of judgment and turmoil and confusion. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for Jesus and for uh, your church. We thank you for his words and we pray that just as you preserved your people through that great time of judgment and unsettlement, so whatever you have for us in our culture, whatever's coming, whatever is happening around us, Father, preserve your people. 
Hold us up, strengthen us, give us your Holy Spirit so that we may find ways to serve each other and increase your kingdom even as the kingdoms of this world are crumbling on every side. Lord, save and deliver and protect your people through each exodus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.